Welcome to Market Scales, The Trust Revolution, How Trust Unlocks the Future. Hosted by the CEO of White Fox Defense, a global leader in drone airspace security, here's technology entrepreneur, Luke Fox. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Lockdown, a Market Scale podcast. I'm your host, Luke Fox. Thanks for joining us. On The Lockdown, we explore how innovations in business and technology are redefining who, what, and how we trust. As our lives become ever more connected, globalized, and intrinsically linked, there is a revolution brewing to ensure we can step forward confidently to embrace the world we find ourselves in. Bringing together leaders, lawmakers, and lawbreakers, we will dissect how trust is established, shared, and challenged as we enter the next great political, cultural, and technological revolution. When I'm not exploring trust with you, I'm helping unlock the full potential of drones through trust as CEO of White Fox Defense, a global leader in drone airspace security. Today, we're joined by Brendan Groves, Head of Regulatory and Policy Affairs at Skydio, a world leader in autonomous flight. He was formerly the Associate Deputy Attorney General of the United States, one of the highest ranking attorneys in the country. Something that has always stood out to me about Brendan is how he has accomplished so much so quickly and has dedicated himself to the service of others throughout his career. From social entrepreneurship programs in Haiti and Ethiopia, to creating employment opportunities for women in Afghanistan and Kenya, to creating 100 sustainable water projects across Africa, to helping free a wrongly imprisoned person in Cambia, and to finally to advocating for military victims of rape, you think that he's working as full-time as a humanitarian aid worker. And yet, he's also a high-ranking former government official, a law school professor, and a tech executive. Brendan, it's great to have you on the show with us. Thanks very much, Luke. You're way too kind. <laughs> no, you've, you've done so much, and I've only started to capture that uh, for the audience here. So as you know, something that we like to do starting off the show is have our guests share an example of a high-intensity situation where they had to come to grips with the importance of trust and how they grew in their ability to become a better leader. Can you share one of those examples with us, Brendan? I would love to. And the example that comes to mind for me was playing a leadership role in the development and the passage of the first law that allows federal civilian agencies to detect and disrupt drone threats all across the country. This is something you're familiar with, Luke, um, by virtue <laughs> yes. of your day job, and it's important to you and your industry. It's also important to to really every American. Um, I remember, you know, the story started in early February of 2017 when I received an unexpected call from the White House asking me, or really telling me, to lead <laughs> this effort, put together a legislative proposal get it through the interagency somehow, and then get it through the Congress somehow. This is well before we ever had, uh, we still really haven't had a drone attack on that scale, but we know that it could happen at any time. It's a lot easier to pass a law in the aftermath of tragedy than it is beforehand. And I think after a year and a half of doing that, getting the bill together, getting it out of the interagency, briefing the Congress um, you know, 80 times or more, both at the member and staff level, um, literally dozens and dozens of, of meetings and do lots of pushback, lots of why should we Goodness. care, this hasn't happened here. It really came to a head in, in 2018 when we needed- After two years. Right, right. So 
we it, it was a it was a long hard slog really because no American blood had been spilled here in the homeland. If we'd had a single attack, we could have passed a law in a day. Um, but we would, we didn't want to wait, of course, to do that. So it came to a head in the fall of 2018 when we had to get permission from six committees of Congress, both chairman and ranking members, both of a different party, obviously. Um, so 12 members overall to add the bill to the FA Reauthorization Act. Um, and we had a handful of days to secure their consent. So working really around the clock, um, a lot on the line and with the threat growing every day and negotiating with members of Congress and their staff with industry really gave me just a fantastic lens on the importance of trust, not only in the political world and the policy world, um, but in the, in the real world, everything really comes down to trust they needed to trust us and we frankly need to trust him. We got it done and after it passed, the then Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein, I'll, I'll never forget, looked me in the eye and said, you know, Brendan, this is one of the rare national security laws not written in blood. Um, and that line will always mm. stick with me. Um, but I certainly learned a lot about the importance of, of trust, how to get people to trust you to do something big even before um, a major catalyst or a major tragedy has occurred. Right, without that proof of that American blood having been spilt, that's 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 quite uh, a stark reminder of how we we respond often to catastrophe, uh, but planning out and saving lives uh, sometimes doesn't get the fanfare, as uh, <laughs> as you put it. I'm I'm curious there when you 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 talked about this, and one of the things that I that I'm just so amazed with, uh, you know. You're you're on you're in DC, and I'd call you from California, and I'd be sleepy here in California, and you'd be uh, it'd be like you know eight nine o'clock, and you'd be telling me you're still at the office, and I think it just amazes me how uh, I think it's so easy for us to just assume that government officials are kind of just uh, are are barely working, as many people like to accuse. But uh, from everything I've seen uh, from so many government officials and you uh, yourself in particular, just what is it that drives you uh, when you're as a government, when you were in, in government, like what drove you to, for uh, to put yourself to 110 percent, giving it your all being there, uh, you know, pulling all nighters? I think just people don't fully they think of that as a startup, you know, people who are invested in equity. But that's so, it's just yeah. Can you share a little bit about that? Right. I mean, I've always been passionate about public service and and that is by no means unique. You know, there are tens of thousands of members in uniform as well as civilian officials across the country and the world who who have given, you know, much more than I have. But service has always compelled me. Just this idea that we're all in it together, um, the idea that we're trying to search for and find a better union. Um, and when I was a prosecutor, I loved standing in front of a judge and a jury and saying that I represented the United States. And I think it's that kind of uh, aspiration that that drives those who spend, you know, careers and lifetimes in, in, in public service and the opportunity to solve hard problems that often lack easy or quick solutions, but that matter deeply to the the lives of, of Americans is is compelling in and of itself. Hmm. So it's that entrepreneurial spirit, uh, even within government and using government to 
provide and create those solutions that are complex and difficult that we often think only private industry can solve. Right. Yeah. So definitely uh, startups are not the only ones working startup hours. There are there are plenty of people in the government, especially, of course, as you know, in the cybersecurity world, defending mm-hmm. government networks, defending private networks, um, and in some cases conducting you know offensive actions when, when authorized. And so those folks are really on the, the front lines of this new digital divide, the digital war, um, and, and a lot of fantastic work being done uh, in the United States you know, as we speak. Yeah, and, and so at, while you were at Department of Justice as uh, one of these high-ranking uh, attorneys, you you mentioned your focus on drone and counter-drone technology. I'm curious, during your time there, you must have been dealing with a lot of very complex, high-stakes issues where there wasn't a clear right or wrong or uh, a clear solution. Uh, and I'm curious, just what did you learn from that experience and maybe compromise and how you get people to support something that is is not perfect right so my day job at the department of justice was managing national security policy on behalf of the deputy attorney general well that sounds boring because what, what does that really what does that really mean because i know it's a lot more exciting than that right uh it, it, it was definitely is definitely exciting uh, what it what it means is that i had sort of day-to-day responsibility to liaise with the white house national security council and advise senior DOJ officials as well as interagency officials on all manner of national security issues, both domestically and around the world. Um, so, and that's, you know, so folks in those jobs, you, um, most of your work is sensitive. You can't exactly take it home. So that's why you tend to spend very, very, very long hours um, at the office, but, but definitely exciting. I think what I learned more than anything is, is really the importance of, of storytelling, uh, which may not be obvious at mm. first glance, but, but this idea that humans naturally connect to stories. And, and when you can frame something in the context of, of a story, it really motivates people. You know, stories have a natural call to action. Everyone resonates with that. And so when you're trying to get things done, especially things that lack any semblance of a roadmap, it's it's often useful to frame it in terms of, of a story. You know, what are you trying to do? Where are you trying to go? Um, what 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 kind of a character are you trying to become, or is this issue becoming? And and that and framing things that way can help you to forge areas of consensus, find commonalities, um, build the coalitions that are necessary to create any sort of real change. And I guess that's that's the other, that's a related point is that, y- you know, communities create change. You don't have solo actors. That's certainly true in the government. It seems to be true in industry from what I've found so far is that change really happens in the context of a community. And, and, um, and, and that's certainly true in the drone space where it takes a lot of people working together to achieve, you know, big goals. My goodness, and some of those big goals that you accomplished uh, at your time there was one is the passage of this uh, this this bill after years of lobbying, working with Cong- Congress, working with industry, working across all these agencies. I'm curious, can you, and you, I know you can't share details of uh, those uh, high stakes national security uh, things that you're working on, but can you share an example or at high level just to give some context to like, what, what are we talking about here? Yeah, I mean, yeah, at a high level. So 
the issues span the gamut from nail biter issues regarding hostages, overseas U.S. hostages, how to get them back, um, plotting policy and, in fact, operations that were very dangerous and sensitive overseas to advance U.S. national security and foreign policy goals, um, oftentimes with with real stakes on on either side, and also policy issues. So what is our strategic approach to this terrorist group or this region of the world? How do we calibrate the the huge amount of interest we have and DOJ, you know, DOJ has um, personnel deployed in dozens and dozens and dozens of countries around the world. How do we ensure that we're calibrating our law enforcement responsibilities, that we're bringing people to justice? So lots of issues, most issues that, you, that the deputy attorney general and the attorney general have to deal with are incredibly complex or else they wouldn't be bothered um, with them. And so it's really sorting through things, developing priorities, and trying to execute sort of big picture strategies that sometimes involve, you know, important tactical things, um, especially for instance when you're dealing with hostages, which is something we 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 certainly did did deal with um, sometimes to to great effect. And so what you just described, I mean, that's so much. There's so much weight in that, and uh, so much weight on you, and something that uh, many people around the world uh, struggle with is the stress of their of their day jobs of their uh, what they're doing and then going home how do you not take that home i know for you said from a security perspective you (laughs) actually can't (laughs) physically take it home but how do you not take home that that stress like what 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 have you learned over these years of working in these very complex high stakes scenarios yeah it's a it's a good question i mean to some extent i think it's unavoidable you know I, i i i find it difficult to completely wall yourself off to the weight and reality of the issues on your plate. And you know this, Luke, running a fast-growing business uh, where you have lots of lives that depend on you. It's it's really, they're all, it's really the same sort of story no matter what position you're playing from. But, you know, I, I, I think for me, I've, I've uh, found a lot of um, solace, I suppose, in, in service and you know, trying to achieve uh, the goals. I think there's a lot of satisfaction in that and that it does sort of take some of the weight off when you pass a law or you um, help get a hostage home or you advise on a successful operation, things like that. There's some sort of intrinsic value that, that helps you deal with it. But um, but yeah, I do think it's, it's a, there are challenging issues. And of course there are people who've, who've um, dealt with many more challenging things, things than, than I have as well. And so it sounds like part of that key to success for you is keeping that perspective on uh, on the what the the length of what you're doing and um, how others are dealing with the other aspects to it, uh, as well as just on the bigger scale. Right. Yeah. Yeah. To to know where you are, where you're going, and to not to try to the extent possible not to get wrapped around the axle by the myriad setbacks that you are sure to encounter if you do anything remotely involving public policy, um, which is which is a consensus building exercise. You're never going to get everything you want, but the only way you get anything you want is if you never stop trying. Hmm. 
And so how do you know when you've gone enough, like when, as you're doing this consensus building and as you're working in very high, these high stakes, these political, you're dealing with cultural matters, you're dealing with matters of security and privacy and all of these kind of coming together. How do you build that consensus? You talked a little bit about storytelling, uh, but once you get past that stage, okay, everyone disagrees. Now, now what? Yeah, that's, that's where you make your money. <laughs> I suppose. I mean, that's that's definitely that's definitely a challenging thing. I mean, I think going back to the Preventing the Emerging Threats Act, just to use the the drone our archetype um, to drive the conversation. When we first set out to do this, the commercial drone industry had understandable concerns about equipping federal law enforcement officials with the ability to disrupt and and even in certain cases to destroy um, drone aircraft in the sky that, that could be threatening. They were they felt threatened because this was new. And they were conducting um, extremely responsible operations. It's a small growing industry. And you, you certainly know the story here, um, Luke. So it was, we had to tell them stories. We had to include them in the story about the fast growing threat that we were seeing every day in the battle space in, in Syria, Afghanistan, and Iraq, which spread, of course, to South America. Um, in Venezuela, we've seen it. We've seen it in Mexico. What is it? Uh, well, that's the drone threat, which with... Uh, with what does that, that really look like? What, 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 what did you see? Like, why was this important? Yeah, and, and certainly you, you, you know all about this too, but there are a couple of major dimensions. I mean, one is the threat, maybe a few major dimensions. One is the criminal threat. Drones used to commit or enable crimes, whether that's sort of peeping Tom crimes um, or even espionage, which is a very real risk. And two is drones used to commit really acts of war, to drop explosive devices, to set up ruses, to conduct intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance. These things sound like science fictions, but as you know very well, they happen every single day all around the world. And the third layer of risk um, very apropos for today's conversation is all about cybersecurity. Drones are Internet of Things devices that happen to fly, and drones are more than that. They're computers in the sky, and you can do anything with a drone that you can do with a laptop. And if you're a sophisticated hacker, a drone gets you proximity. It enables you to get closer than ever before to servers of interest and to compromise network architecture. You wouldn't have a prayer of entering without the help of a drone. And I know you've seen this this play out too. So those are the three layers of risk um, that we primarily see from, from drones, you know, mostly overseas, of course, what we needed to ensure we were defending against them here. And so how does somebody, and uh, I'm going to play dumb a little bit here, but it sounds like you hate drones. It sounds like drones are, you know, these evil things. How does somebody go from that creating a law that on its face sounds like an anti-drone law to now running policy in Washington, D.C. for one of the fastest growing drone startups. Right. What am I missing? Yeah, right. So it's not a not really a switch at all. At DOJ, I also developed and led and scaled the U.S. Department of Justice's drone program across our five law enforcement components to include the Federal Bureau of Investigation, the Bureau of Prisons, and, and so on. And I've been in and around drones for more than a decade, beginning as an officer in the Air Force. Um, so I've always seen the power of drones to revolutionize 
ordinary activities in ways that keep people safe, increase efficiency, um, and really, really, frankly, change the world in, in unexpected ways. And I think, you know, security is often an enabler of, of innovation and progress. So once we saw the government step in after the advent of automotive vehicles, develop rudimentary safety mechanisms, what happened? Well, cars became much safer. You have fewer deaths, still far too many, but fewer deaths. And it actually allowed the industry to take off. And I think these sort of fundamental security precepts are enabling progress in the commercial drone industry. And companies like Skydio are really the beneficiary of that. But at Skydio, our, our shtick, as we'll discuss further, and our primary focus is really producing drones that are capable of trustworthy, autonomous flight in and of themselves. So these are the types of drones that make people in the government um, sleep easily at night because they're not worried about drones made by Skydio crashing into things or people um, because drones are smart enough to fly themselves thanks to the power of artificial intelligence. Fascinating. So why does this sexy AI-driven autonomous drone company need someone like you advocating for them in Washington, D.C.? And should other companies and tech companies, like how important is that? It's, it's a good question. So let me just start with maybe a 15-second overview of of Skydio for listeners who may not have heard it before. Essentially, Skydio is based in Redwood City. We were founded in 2014 by um, individuals who met as grad students at MIT where they were pioneering the future of autonomous flight and the artificial mm. intelligence and computer vision technology that allowed for the first time drones to fly themselves. They um, Since then, they've been refining that technology for more than a decade and we've experienced incredible levels of commercial success based based on the strength of our of our then flagship product, the Skydio 2 released last year, and our new line of products, the Skydio X2 family of drones. And the secret of Skydio is to break through the, the paradigm of manually flown hardware-centric devices that have long defined the industry that require expert pilots. They're, they're expensive to buy, they're easy to crash. So we flip that paradigm on its head. So we, we make drones that are incredibly um, easy to fly almost impossible to crash and enable new levels of functionality and efficiency um, and let, most importantly, commercial end users and public safety agencies and government agencies focus on the mission while the drone focuses on the flying. And that's how we're really going to scale this industry. Autonomy is the key lever to scalability. You can't scale a program if you're spending 80% of your money on pilots and training. But if your drones fly themselves and conduct the missions with minimal um, human oversight, if any, um, then now you have a tool instead. Of, now you have a teammate, really, instead of a tool, and and that's the goal of of, of Skydio. So what you just described sounds phenomenal, and it, probably a lot of people listening are saying, "Well, why isn't everyone using that? Why isn't companies around the world using that? Like, what what's the barrier there?" And and I, I'm going to guess that that's part of what your job is is to figure out what that barrier is and to solve it. Right, right. So um, I think a couple of a couple of answers to that. One, you know, Skydio is, is really still uh, just getting started. So we're incredibly fast growing. We really released our, um, we like to call, the, you know, the Tesla 3 product. Um, 
model variant in last October. That's the Skydio 2. Before that, we had sort of a Tesla Roadster model that proved the possibility of flying robots that that were that had trustworthy autonomy. The Skydio 2 is is really the mass market device that has been wildly successful um, in the United States and overseas. And now Skydio is incredibly fast growing on the strength of that product and our new ones. So my role in DC is really to focus on the regulatory space. Certainly we live in a highly regulated industry, those of us in the aviation business. And so I leverage my background in, in government and government also served on what's called the FAA UAS Executive Committee. It's a mouthful, but it's basically the senior <laughs> interagency body that that oversees the integration of drones into the national airspace. So I've had a chance to have a hand in a lot of the important regulatory measures that are shaping the future of unmanned flight here in the U.S. And now it's my job and, and, and actually it's a really exciting one to enable this new type of operation where the drone itself is conducting missions that were previously reserved for uh, the most expert pilots. Um, and that is a really fun project and, and we've, we've had some success uh, so far. My goodness. And so as, as part of that role, you've kind of, you've had this incredibly successful career in the military and in government. And now you've gone from that and from working in the legal system now kind of onto the other side of the cor corporate uh, and not just, you know, kind of uh, the typical corporate, but startup life uh, and merging that that policy work that you've done previously in the government and the, hi the highly regulated air, uh, airspace work and now merging that in with the the wild, agile startup world. What has that transition been like for you stepping out of, you know, going from military into government and then now this big jump into the startup world? I've been very fortunate because... Skydio reminds me a lot of the best government agencies I've worked in. There's a very strong sense of esprit de corps, shared commitment to the mission, and overall an incredible willingness to sacrifice to achieve this incredible vision of a world defined by trustworthy autonomy devices that do meaningful work on their own. Um, and, and it reminds me actually a lot of special operations. I had the good fortune to deploy to Afghanistan with joint special operations. And I saw the same commitment to the mission and the same entrepreneurial mindset, honestly, in the special operations community that I think Skydio demonstrates. So I've been very fortunate um, in that I've, I've worked before in hard charging environments where people are equally committed to solving really hard problems. And Skydio is that in every sense of the of the word my goodness and as as you kind of talk about afghanistan there it kind of it reminds me of uh and correct me if i'm wrong you went uh you served in afghanistan in the military uh, uh alongside and with special operations uh and with those teams but then you did something very different than what most people do when they come out of that you went back and started and started helping people in Afghanistan. Can you, uh, as well as at some other countries, can you talk a little bit about that? So you're referring to an organization called Flying Scarves, uh, and that is a, a nonprofit dedicated to coming alongside 
incredible women in conflict zones and connecting them to global markets that allow them to improve their quality of life and bring their families and their communities along with them. So during deployments to Afghanistan, um, a group of, of fighter pilots, good friends of mine, met some, some incredible uh, entrepreneurs who were women in Afghanistan, um, almost all of whom are widows, and began helping them in small ways. I got, got connected um, a bit after that, but obviously shared the same vision from my own experience in Afghanistan, going outside the wire. And over time, that organization scaled from buying a handful of, of, uh, of textile materials like scarves to buying extremely large quantities and selling them in the, in the US and the UK really just took off organically. And then we eventually, I took the, the organization to Kenya as well to work in a very hard hit part of Kenya with an extremely high rate of, of child orphans and, and, uh, and widows as well. So, you know, I mean, I don't think that was any different. It's just, it's just all, it's all about service at the end of the day. It's just about solving a problem. And that, that was a problem that needed solving. It still does. Um, and, and we think that organizations like Flying Scarves have a small but very important role to play. What can I do to help support Flying Scarves? Like, what can we do to help support that just incredible work that, that obviously needs to be done? Sure. So I think, you know, supporting organizations like Flying Scarves, which means buying textile items as, as gifts, is a great way to support um, women overseas who are are amazing entrepreneurs in their own right. Really, the only thing we're doing is helping to connect them to markets that might otherwise be hard to reach. They're the ones doing all the really hard work um, themselves. Um, Flying Scarf is a good one. There are others, organizations, of course, that, that do similar work um, and would definitely commend any listener who's interested into looking at organizations who are doing that. I should say too, what's interesting is that is that there are a lot of studies on, on the fact that the countries where where women have um, equal rights and they're treated appropriately, they tend to, they're less likely to be in conflict with neighboring countries. And so actually helping a country and helping uh, the women in a country sort of claim that mantle and, and take care of their families and actually lead their communities um, out of poverty is, is actually a direct way to end cycles of, of poverty and make the world a better and, and safer place. Wow, that's that's a lot there. And so I think it's it's just that's that's a lot, right? You're looking at t- helping these uh, women sell their scarves in these international markets and blowing that and up to show you know how this actually can help make the world overall, not just the individual impact, but the world overall more peaceful. I'm curious what 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 other ways should we be aware of that can help ultimately bring peace and a greater connectivity around the world uh, that maybe each that we can be a part of. Yeah, that's, it's a, it's a really good, like you've, you've been all around the world. You've seen so much. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I think to some extent it's, it's also important to, to, you know, look down the street and be a good neighbor right here at home as well. And I think that that work carries equal weight as any kind of, of nonprofit or, or social entrepreneurship work abroad. And I think it all comes down to solving problems, right? So if, if the problem is down your street with, um, with a neighbor and his family who are, who are 
out of luck and under hard times or if the problem is 15,000 miles away with um, a group of widows who are really struggling. It's just about, you know, having an entrepreneurial mindset coming together and working with others, you know, going back to the theme of, of change only happens in the midst of a community to solve those problems. So I think it's just so situationally dependent that I'm reluctant to give advice other than, you know, look to your left and your right and see what the problems are and then go solve them. And so how, how from, that's, that's so uh, helpful. Uh, and it's that kind of how each of us can make a difference and impact an individual life can, it kind of has that ripple effect around the world. I'm curious when you have done, you've done this work that we talked about in Afghanistan and Kenya, uh, you've also taken some really interesting pro uh, programs to, I believe, Ethiopia and Haiti. Can you, can you share a little bit about that? Sure. I've been involved in, with some other organizations, served on the board and of, uh, groups like there's an organization called Together We Can Haiti that does incredible community development work in Haiti. I also, you know, founded some time ago an organization that, that built water wells in sub-Saharan Africa. Um, but again, it really all comes down to we, these are problems that we saw that were serious that needed solutions. And, and if you see a problem, probably you're the one to solve it. Um, so it's really, it's really as simple, as simple about that. And, and I think the programs that I found are most successful are those, and this is no great secret, those that, that really partner with the community and don't offer solutions for the community, but offer, but engineer solutions with a community. And, and those tend to have staying power and to really do the most good on the ground, either domestically or overseas. It seems to be a theme uh, for kind of how you approach these problems is really thinking both sustainably and long-term while maximizing the near-term value. Uh, I'm curious, do you, do you have an, like an example of where something you're maybe doing now or in the recent past uh, that, can, that captures that uh, very concretely? That's a good question. Um, yeah, I might have to think about that. Okay, we'll we'll come we'll come back to that. It's definitely a theme that I see with with you and in how you've operated, uh, just in the years that I've known you. And it's really ca uh, capturing that sustainability, uh, which also goes to the scalability. Well, I'm I'm curious. You know, you you have such a holistic perspective and set of experiences uh, in your career and your personal life uh, that. It's interesting that you're also a professor, and I'm curious, how have you taken this this view and brought it into the classroom and creating kind of a spin on what maybe that just the textbook that the students are reading? Right. So I'm I'm lucky to get to teach cybersecurity law and policy at the George Washington Law School here in D.C. So I expose the students to a world that some of them have never seen before and that's the level of threat and the lack of trust in cyberspace and this is something you're very familiar with luke so it's really an opportunity to walk this the students through the reality of the the battlefield that cyberspace has unfortunately become and then more importantly to come up with as a class a set of solutions capable of addressing that challenge, not just for the US, but for the world. And, and, and I think um, for better, for worse, I've been exposed to the, th the threat 
both in my job at the Department of Justice um, and in my time as an officer in the Air Force and also as an official at the National Security Agency. So I sort of bring that perspective to bear um, and, and work with the students to, to really see that world as it is and, and try to shape it going forward. It makes a lot of sense. And I, I can imagine that impact is incredibly felt uh, from each of your students as they then enter into these careers uh, where cybersecurity is, uh, is so often misunderstood or kind of relegated uh, into this kind of a, an obscure piece, which is the reality is, and something that you've said here is that it impacts art every single day. Every, you can't escape. Uh, the impact of uh, cybersecurity or the lack thereof. <laughs> exactly right. And I think as the internet becomes a common feature of all the things in our life, hence the term the internet of things, you see cybersecurity um, become an ever-present reality. When it's, it's a strange world when toasters can be used to conduct cyber attacks, but as you know, they have been. Uh, because for some reason, people think it's a good idea to have Bluetooth connected toasters that that are connected to the the internet and, and wired in, um, and so any any even innocuous devices like that can actually be leveraged um, for ill by malign actors on the internet, and and that certainly includes things like drones, which is why it's so important to build products designed from the ground up to be trusted both in the form of their cybersecurity and also in the way that they interact with with humans and their use. Wow, and so when we talk about cybersecurity, there is no greater example than that than the, what is, I don't even think arguably, but by fact, the greatest cybersecurity force in the country, the NSA, the National Security Agency. All right, so not even the country, but in the world. Uh, and you've had the, uh, the opportunity to work there and even, uh, you received the director's award, I'm, which is an extremely prestigious honor. I'm curious, what, what can you share about that? It's such this, this, uh, kind of shrouded in mystery. What can you share about the, what really the NSA is about and the importance to, uh, that agency on the lives of everyone in the United States and really just keeping peace around the world. I know it's something that you've talked about in the past. So the old joke was that NSA meant for never say anything. Um, but but since, <laughs> since then, the NSA has opened up a bit and, and is folks who've both worked there and have worked there are a little more willing and able to talk about um, what actually happens behind the curtain. I mean, there's no doubt that the NSA occupies a very, very important uh, part of the United States effort to ensure that networks are secure. Of course, the NSA concentrates on defending defending the military's networks um, primarily and sensitive, sensitive government networks, and they do that very, very, very well. Um, they, they also, of course, are responsible for gathering intelligence overseas. Um, and they also do that very, very, very well. Um, and I think what I learned at the NSA more, more than anything was maybe twofold. And the first is the importance of cybersecurity and, and of course the internet to everything that we care about, to our freedoms, to privacy, to business. The internet transects 
all of them. And I certainly saw that firsthand, just seeing the gravity. And that's really the second thing is just, and the gravity of the threat um, is really difficult to understate the threat to government networks, the, the threat to private networks. And the reality that, that many, the countries overseas are not just trying to steal credit cards and bank accounts. They're trying to compile data on on Americans and on other countries, citizens overseas that they can use um, in ways that in a big data set can be put to ill use um, against us, both for intelligence targeting and, and other reasons. So seeing the full scope of that threat is very sobering. And I think it makes you more committed on the flip side to do everything you can to ensure cybersecurity uh, wherever you are. Um, and that certainly includes, um, and that's why I was really proud to join Skydia because cybersecurity is core to the company's DNA. We think through that in every sense of the product, both for data at rest on the device, data in transit, flowing back to the controller, to networks. Um, it's easier because we're a US company. So, and, and you, you know this too at White Fox, Luke, where you all also have exceptionally high standards for cybersecurity. So um, that's something Im important to me, but but I would hope, of course, that every company takes it equally seriously. And as, as we look at that, you, you talked a little bit about like the, the ability to be able to target individual people from this mass collection of data that, that governments around the world are doing. I'm curious what, and you talked about the, you know, the kind of the rogue to uh, toaster. Uh, what is it that people you like the people really need to realize is it like when we talk about like viruses and cybersecurity it's often like oh well the computer you know my grandma's computer is just going to be slower like what does that really mean to our, our daily lives yeah so it's, it's a good question i mean obviously they take a they take many forms i mean on the maybe the what we commonly characterize the most malicious form is a virus that interacts with you in a way that's damaging to the way you conduct your business or live your life. And we usually um, think of ransomware. Like what does that the, look like? Is the ransomware is the foremost okay. example, you know, a, a, a virus that takes over your computer until you pay X, X number of, of, uh, of dollars in Bitcoin to, to shut it off. But, you know, an equally pernicious use is stealing all of your personal identifiable information and putting that in a big data set that can then be leveraged in, in even more nefarious ways, potentially to do the bidding of a hostile nation state. Um, that, that doesn't have as much of an impact to you on day zero, but the impact to our overall national security is, is extremely severe in the long run. You know, we see this in things like the hack against OPM, the Office of Personnel Management, um, very large data set that had my data in it and, and the data of millions of others. Um, and we've seen it in the hack of large insurance companies, which have the data of hundreds of millions of Americans in it. Um, there's a lot of value add for hostile foreign adversaries to develop a composite picture um, that they can leverage in all sorts of ways, including to build artificial intelligence sets. Um, so really it's that threat that is, is less obvious but equally pernicious that that I'm most concerned about. And that's certainly one of the things that I 
discuss at length in my class is that don't be don't just be concerned about the ransomware that locks down your computer be concerned about the threat that you can't even see and that threat that you can't see is really what the, the stark reminder that we all have a part to play in ensuring the uh, our cybersecurity hygiene individually, but also just the national security of of our country, as well as just the uh, the overall peace of the world. Right. Cybersecurity has always been a matter of the lowest common denominator, and that continues to be the case. Hmm. And so as you talk about autonomy and, uh, and artificial intelligence, it's so often, you know, we watch Hollywood movies and it's characterized as this kind of big, scary thing. And then we flip on the news and they talk about it as something that's stealing the jobs of millions of people and going to create poverty. And, you know, like this just robotics and autonomy and AI is the end of the world, no matter how you look at it. It seems like you have a very different view of that and seem to disagree fairly strongly judging by where you've uh, put your career. Can you share with us a little bit of why you're not worrying or what we really should be worrying about? Right. Uh, we think autonomy drives incredible values. And if anything, it creates jobs rather than takes them away nine times out of 10. Let me give you an example. So a variety of State Departments of Transportation and companies now have started to use Skydio drones at scale to conduct hundreds of bridges in the United States and overseas because Skydio can conduct a bridge inspection autonomously. And these are inspections that are not only required by law to be conducted every so often, but they're incredibly time-consuming and demanding and expensive. Typically, you have to bring out what's called a snooper truck uh, which is a truck with a giant crane on it. A person has to <laughs> sit in this crane that goes beneath a bridge. Some of these bridges are hundreds of feet in the air. And these snooper trucks, they're not always safe. Sometimes they flip. People have been injured and killed in snooper truck accidents. Very damaging. Not to mention that these operations require 8 to 10 people. They shut down bridges for 8 to 12 hours. Hugely disruptive to modern society on, on busy thoroughfares. With a drone, an inspector who spent his or her lifetime learning how to do this can inspect a complicated bridge in an hour or two or oftentimes less um, and then actually inspect two or three bridges after that in the same day. It actually increases their efficiency. So those bridge inspectors, instead of all being together on the same bridge and, and dangling in snooper trucks um, hundreds of feet above rivers and ravines can actually all go to different bridges and deploy drones. And, and not only that, they can send the drone places where they could not possibly hope to see themselves. Um, so we're actually seeing how autonomy drives incredible value and actually creates new business cases that didn't exist before um, and actually enables new levels of efficiency. So in those bridge inspection example, there are at least a few people in the eight to 12 person crew who weren't you know, gainfully employed throughout the entire experience, but now they could be, um, for instance. So, so I, I, I think the traditional attack or critique on autonomy is probably misguided. It's definitely misguided when it's directed at the world of flying robots, uh, like those that Sky make, Skydio makes, if anything, um, we're seeing Skydio products create jobs and enable new lines of business rather than take them away. 
And in doing so and creating those opportunities, it's also increasing efficiency and safety and uh, just making for a more productive world, which is what allows us to be able to, sounds like, find new opportunities for lines of business uh, and to reallocate the, that labor force. A, a federal civilian entity that has hundreds of Skydio drones that they use to conduct search and rescue missions. And our products have revolutionized the way they conduct these missions, speaking of providing new levels of safety. So before now, they relied on manned aircraft and very large drones that flew over the, the treetops and tried to look for people literally like needles in a haystack beneath um, thick forest. Well, now they can send a Skydio autonomous drone beneath the tree canopy flying in and around the trees. Um, it will both fly itself or you can fly it manually, but it won't fly into a tree or um, good sized branch. It will dodge all of those on its own and actually navigate its own path. So they fundamentally reimagined the way they search for people um, as a result of artificial intelligence on autonomous technology in a way that makes a real difference to these search and rescue operators and certainly to the people who are lost or in great danger um, who are who are the subject of the search. And that's just one example. We see that in a variety of other contexts where automation, just like in the bridge case, is providing new levels of safety, makes it more likely that people get to go home and see their family at night uh, without being in the danger that they they once were exposed to. Hmm. And as we as we look at that, it sounds exciting and it sounds it's the, the kind of this next wave of innovation is what robotics and autonomy and AI can do for us. I'm, I'm curious, how do you how do you respond to people who say, well, this that sounds a lot like Black Mirror. And what what are the the ethics that you think through of how new technologies are deployed in a way that helps to make that world a better, safer, more efficient, uh, more peaceful place that you've built your career on? So this is something we think about a lot. In fact, just about a month ago, Skydio released two successive sets of ethical principles. And the first is something we call the Skydio Engagement and Responsible Use Principles. They set out our vision of how autonomous flying technology impacts the world and, and our view to our, our really our mission of promoting the responsible use of this new and emerging and very powerful technology. The second document is something called the five C's. And these are the principles for the responsible use of drones by public safety. That was a joint product developed in partnership with drone responders, which is the leading association dedicated to the use of drones by public safety agencies in the United States and around the world. So back to the first document, we're the first drone company that we're aware of to produce a holistic set of principles, ethical principles to guide our approach. And the first of those principles, I think, um, says, says a lot about, about who we are as a company and, and where we see this technology going. And that's that we consider in everything we do, the holistic impact of our products on communities and on countries. Uh, we are shaped by accountability, by transparency. We care about privacy. We care about civil liberties. That is infused across every layer of the company from the way we develop and design products to the way we deploy them, to the way that we sell them. Um, 
And on the five C's, obviously the use of drones or the use of any emerging technology by government actors must be taken very seriously. It must be done within a framework designed to protect the public um, and not to abuse the public's trust. And that's exactly what the five C's do. So um, I'm really proud to be at a company that's helping to drive not only advances in technology, but advances in policy in ways that will protect us while driving those new levels of efficiency and safety that we've talked about. And it sounds like by creating this uh, this ethical standard and these policies that uh, that allows you to really be able to uh, create accountability and to say this is this is how we expect this technology be to you to be used and and, and a mechanism to hold them accountable for that proper use of the technology. So our final question and our final moments together, something we like to ask is just holistically, what what do you want to ensure that everyone who's listening understands about the importance of trust and what they can do to create a better, more trusting world? I think together it's time to embrace the potential for autonomy, both in the air, on the ground, you know, to make our world safer to make our world more efficient in in ways that will and that will require reimagining paradigms and assumptions that we've taken for granted and in in particular with respect to drones you know i think we're seeing this hunger for products that provide high levels of security high levels of trust um, and high levels of autonomy right Drones that are capable of flying themselves and protect all the data stored on them or otherwise transiting the aircraft. That's what the industry is long one. Certainly that's what Skydio is committed to providing. And, and that's where I, uh, I see the industry going in the future. Well, Brendan, I just want to thank you so much for joining us on the show. Uh, you bring such a wealth of experience and background uh, going from military to the intelligence community and in nonprofit work and government and now into this, this exciting tech, uh, technology and entrepreneurship uh, sectors. It's really just, uh, we appreciate so much that holistic view of how trust can is intertwined and has been intertwined throughout your career. You know, one of the things that uh, really stands out to me is how much of a theme throughout uh, your career and throughout your actions uh, has been where you focus so much on creating scalable, sustainable uh, solutions that have a very much a long-term focus while also that near-term impact. And I think just for myself, I want to uh, think in my life how I can embrace that theme uh, more and more that seems to come so naturally to how you operate. So I, I really appreciate you sharing that with me. And I would encourage all of our listeners, if you've heard anything uh, that Brendan has shared that's been surprising or novel or helpful for you in your business or career, please shoot us a message, tell us about your experience, tweet us, let us hear uh, how the, this, uh, this, all of this information and this, these stories, uh, back to that storytelling that uh, Brendan talked about at the beginning, can really make an impact in all of our lives and what each of us can do individually to impact those to our left and our right to make an overall uh, better world. Uh, a quote that comes to mind that uh, one of my favorite quotes uh, is, 
if not you, then who? If not now, then when? And it seems like a lot of your life, Brendan, has been focusing on where are the problems and if not me to create the solution, then who? Well, and taking that responsibility and attacking that and going after that. Uh, you've done so much in, uh, at, at such a young age. Uh, I'm so excited to see uh, the huge career that you have ahead of you. But I want to thank you so much for joining us on the show. And uh, I hope that everyone who's listening will join us next time on The Lockdown. Thank you so much, Brendan. Thanks, Lou.